0: is Mindy Sue. I'm calling in from upstate New York. I'm a designer and researcher focusing on revisionist history, archival politics, and internet criticism. I'm also an assistant professor at Rutgers, and I teach an additional class in the MFA program at the Yale School of Art.
1: I am very interested by your project, uh, the Cyber Feminism Index, and this was kind of uh, was the window uh, into your work for me. So, I wonder what your inspiration was for the Cyber Feminism Index project. Also, what your kind of working definition of, of cyber feminism is for this project.
0: Yeah, I think when I was in grad school, I was very interested in the New Woman Survival Catalogue. This is kind of like the feminist spinoff or uh, retaliation of the Whole Earth Catalogue by Susan Rennie and Kirsten Grimstad. And at the same time, I was taking a class on the politics of citations um, called Experimental Infrastructures. And I was also doing a fellowship at the Berkman Klein Center for the Internet and Society, which is kind of like the internet policy wing of the Harvard Law School. So with all of these three things kind of mixing together, it ended up um, really thinking about how we can rethink the history of the internet. We often focus on the architectures who create the protocol and infrastructure and architecture and spend less time focusing on the application layer of the stack. So while a lot of people in this index are highly technical, um, I also wanted to think about how their different media allowed them to create different forms of activism online or, or through digital technologies generally. As for a working definition of cyberfeminism, I think the best way to explain it is to unpack the term itself. So cyber first came about through Norbert Wiener's cybernetics in the 1940s. Um, later this prefix was added to cyberspace um, in William Gibson's Neuromancer in the 1980s. and a lot of the science fiction at this time was hard science fiction. So using like the nuts and bolts of ray guns and cyber or uh, cyberspace and spaceships and things like this. And a lot of amazing people at the time were also creating science fiction around soft science fiction. Like what is the visionary fiction element of these stories? Like Octavia Butler and Ursula Le Guin, Samuel Delaney, people like these. So in the 90s, when uh, it finally became joins to feminism, cyber feminism, that co-option of the term was kind of like a provocation. So how could women and other marginalized people think of what a cyberspace might be, what this technological utopia might be? And I think this is also pointing back to the cybernetic origins, how people can use technology while using it critically. It's very much a feedback loop.
1: I had no idea that neuromancer influences the terms like cyber or the cyber yeah, yeah. net or the the way that we actually talk about the internet. That's actually fascinating.
0: Yeah, it's funny that it's the first instance of cyberspace, because now it's something that we see as kind of a retrograde term, but it only came about in the 80s. It is a surprising detail.
1: for our listeners, then you could kind of verbally describe the, the kind of interface of the Cyber Feminism Index, uh, how one interacts with this, and then perhaps some of your decisions uh, that led to it being this way. Yeah, I think
0: two of the primary goals for the structure of the site was thinking about how websites age. How you might future proof a website, and how you might visualize citations. And then, from a design aesthetic perspective, I was really thinking about how to make the defaults appear unusual as a way to kind of question what these standards are. So, from starting with the endpoint, when you arrive at the site, it kind of appears like a straightforward index. It uses default HTML form fields like button and checkbox and things like this. But as you navigate the site, the visitor, the site responds to the visitor's interactions. So the navigation starts to glow. The submit button glows. When you click an entry, a side panel appears and kind of tracks all the things that you're opening. And what this allows is uh, kind of these associative learning paths that I often talk about with a friend and collaborator, Charles Braskoski of ARENA. Um, we kind of call this the side panel, we call it the trail. Like how can we actually map what things were intuitively clicking and how those might connect together. There's also a series of cross-references in between each of the entries to encourage nonlinear reading. But I think really thinking about the future proofing angle, because of a lot of works in the site are older from the 90s, I had to gather them from Rhizome's web recorder or Internet Archives Wayback Machine. So it was really making me think like, wow, are people going to even be able to access this site in 5, 10 years, maybe even one year? So with my collaborator, Angeline Meitzler, we were really trying to think about how can we future-proof this site to the best of our ability? So that meant we didn't use third-party plugins or libraries. We kind of stuck to web basics, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, Python. So there are certain things that are like kind of slow and kind of rough, but I think this also kind of fits the ethos of the project. So I kind of like that it's an imperfect study of uh, how to create a container or an online archive. It's also interesting because now we have such a reliance on platforms. So if we're only used to publicizing or using the internet through TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or Squarespace, when those platforms degrade or change, then it will ultimately change your online presence. So I kind of do encourage this rough DIY handmade web style. It gives you a little more ownership on how it looks and what you put on it or what you're encouraged to to broadcast
1: I noticed that it seems like kind of indexing or cataloging is is something that you do outside of only only this project or it seems to, to be a kind of common thread in your work so I'm curious mm-hmm. about what impassionates you about things that maybe some of us think of as kind of banal like this indexing and cataloging i think in my physical life i
0: don't have many objects i tend to be quite minimal so in my digital life i'm kind of like a hoarder i have so much information i like scrape as many pdfs that are out there um And because of this, because you can't open a box and see the mess, I think it requires quite a bit of organization or else you just don't know what you have. Um, The reason why I became interested in indexing and cataloging is one, it's kind of a search tool, but also thinking about how limiting the typical taxonomic structures are. So like I use a lot of spreadsheets. I love spreadsheets. Um, Ted Nelson, the the creator of the concept of hypertext and hyperlinks talks about the rectangularity built into spreadsheets. So this means like a certain rigidity of how you might structure things along an X and Y axis rather than thinking of a three-dimensional multi-dimensional linking structure. Um, And this is something that would be incredible. And there are some platforms that are definitely thinking about this like Obsidian or Rome or Arena. But for me, it's really about trying to almost create like a knowledge map of all the things that I'm interested in and might somehow reach. It's not like I've read everything that I collect, but I think that mapping it, it's almost a good indication of like what you're aiming for, uh, what what you would like to start consuming. I definitely think a huge part of this is about care and maintenance. So, certain tools like Pinterest or even Arena, you can just drop an image on and then it's in your artboard or mood board or collection. But if you took a couple seconds to change the file name, talk about the context, maybe give attribution to what you're linking. All of these things are like forms of care. It gives care to your future self, looking back on these works. And it also gives care to other people who will look at them, and gives care to the people who made the work to begin with. And I think getting in a habit of slowing down and paying, giving credit where credit is due is a really valuable thing that we can all start doing. It's not really encouraged. It's so easy to like just take a screenshot and share something. And that virality is kind of a, like a rich commentary on how we currently use the web. But if we're trying to think about what we want to change, I do think like slowing down and maintaining the things we've built is definitely a part of like my ethos when I'm starting these projects. So for me, the politics of citation is also this politics of reading. Um, Who you read tends to be who you cite and who you speak to seems to be who you cite. So if you look at if a majority of the works we're reading and speaking about is then documented in secondary sources and written text, and those are all kind of these dominant figures that we see over and over, for a variety of reasons. They kind of validate, quote unquote, your, your work. And um, that's kind of how academic art- articles are weighted. This doesn't necessarily encourage highlighting people who are outside of the canon, whatever the canon might mean, right? I recently interviewed Adrienne Marie Brown, who is an organizer and author based in Detroit, and she for this gallery, AIR Gallery, we're kind of curating a show and her interview was part of that series. And we ask her like, everyone's talking about this Audrey Lorde quote, the master's tools will never, never dismantle the master's house. It's kind of become like a rallying cry for this year. Um, what tools are not part of the master's arsenal? And Adrian says, conversation has never been part of, has never been a master's tool. And I think that when we speak, this also reminds me of a different interview I just held with Amelia Winger Bearskin, who is part of the Indigenous tribe of New York, New York State. And she also says that in her tribe and community, you don't, this thing of the idea of a single author is impossible. It doesn't exist. Um, every speaker is talking about or reframing all the things they've learned from the people around them. And this doesn't really exist in the States. Everything is very much me, 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 or I. Um, So using both of these examples, I think politics of citation is just giving or making it clear that what you speak about and what you know doesn't come from yourself. It comes from everyone around you. And it's just giving light to that web of of, uh, links and citations.
1: Lot of time th- told that maybe we need to know the Canon in in order to even kind of start to get away from it like it's like this yeah. idea that you have to consume this entire work the body of work that you know is problematic or missing things or really only has a very specific um, comes from a very specific situation or very specific point of view in order to even start to to kind of critique it or or look at Uh. it so yeah and i've heard you or i read that you referred to uh this index as kind of an an anti-canon and so i yeah i wonder if you could speak more about that intention of having an anti-canon and if you feel like the cyber feminism index is kind of able to de this kind of white, cis, uh, western, middle-class perspective, which um, is quite prevalent.
0: So a friend of mine, Melanie Hoff, she's an educator at the School for Poetic Computation and a lot of other schools, and she's also a working artist in New York. They told me, um, in order to unlearn something, you need to learn it. Uh, And I think this is really pointing on what you're saying. You don't even know what's missing until you see uh, what's handed to you. And I do think that for this project, I refer to it as an anti-canon because the structures of validation are not the same as other quote unquote canons or collections or historical archives. So in this case, It's very much crowdsourced. Uh, A lot of the things are submitted by people who visit the index. A lot of them are the results of active conversations. So rather than saying, we welcome all non-binary or queer or uh, BIPOC individuals to submit, I I actively reach out to these people and have like hour long conversations with them and try to include all of their references in the archive and also cite it as something that they referred to me in conversation. Um, so I think this multi-layered approach definitely helps. There's, I took this uh, unconscious bias workshop and the instructor, whose name I'm forgetting, describes it as like a lot of these applications by putting on a banner that says we actively encourage these people to apply in some ways that works. Um, It's kind of like inviting someone to a dance, but it doesn't actually accommodate for when they're at the dance. Is anyone actually inviting them onto the dance floor and dancing with that person? Or are they just standing on the sidelines? And I like thinking of this metaphor because it requires ongoing active engagement. And I'm hoping that this uh, canon or anti-canon, this project, is really an exploration of that. I do, I think, I was able to decenter a cis-white middle class perspective. <laughs> this gets really tricky because the first cyber feminists in the 90s were from Australia, Europe, and the US. And even the first cyber feminist international in 97 was very European, which they thought was actually quite global. Um, and then later, when this was recreated at the ICA, two decades later, um, they were really trying to comment on contemporary times. Like, is cyberfeminist even a relevant term? So, like, Legacy Russell curated a series of Glitch shorts, Victoria Sin performs, like, all of these different figures that were, don't, didn't necessarily self-identify as cyberfeminist. Um, so what I've been trying to do is collect these contemporary examples that mirror the cyber ethos, even if they don't self-identify, but also try to gather these examples from the 90s of different pockets that were forming, but were not part of the original group. And this led me to some, some amazing discoveries. like. The hack feministas of Latin America have been have been practicing since the 90s. It's just, they work in a different language and use a different term. So they're not necessarily like uh, search compatible with these cyber feminists. And same with like the net femis in South Korea. Even Arab cyber feminism deals more with like education and pushing people and women into online networks more than quote unquote using it to create like radical tools or something of this nature. So is it successful? I don't know. I don't know if I would call it successful because it's ongoing and I want to feel compelled to keep adding in these examples. It does kind of feel like an uphill climb. There's a lot of content and by collecting things, you by nature omit some. And I think that's been an interesting and difficult process. But yeah, I'm really learning as I go. I would say we're tr- trying to decenter. I don't know if we've been super successful at it. And mm-hmm. In- pleasure activism, Adrienne Mary Brown describes her role as a gatherer, as a gatherer and editor. And when I read la- my collaborative work partner, Laura Combs, pointed this out to me, like, oh, look at this title. And that resonated with me so much because I really do see myself as a gatherer <laughs> and editor. I'm just trying to, like, collect all of these things and make them legible and do the interlinking. So in many ways, I feel like a Facilitator or collector or someone, or like an aggregator of sorts. Yeah, I think it started with reading a lot and scraping those bibliographies, and then realizing that through talking with Susan Rennie and Kirsten Grimstad, the creators of the New Women's Survival Catalog, they said that you can't create change through an institution, you have to go grassroots. So you can read all the theory you want, but you also need to pair this with an active active projects. This is also a distinction that Judy Malloy pointed out to me, like maybe you can separate them by yak or hack. Yak is theory and hack is practice. So the first bit of the project was kind of what I described. I just reached out to probably a hundred people and asked them for what they think these projects are, what they think these histories are, how to branch out from that, who they might refer. And that's really how it spiraled out. It was like a conversational spider web. And then now that it's the online database is live, it's kind of become a like an online submission form.
1: Awesome. Conversational spider web. It's perfect. Yeah
0: the term i call it an imperfect umbrella term because cyber feminism very much for me connects to the 90s but it's also an easy term for people to like hear and understand. So for me, cyberfeminism includes a lot of contemporary examples. This is like laboria cubanic xenofeminism, you know, legacy rituals, legacy Russell's glitch feminism. Kishana Gray calls this black cyberfeminism. There's the hack feminists and net femis. Stephanie Dinkins says Afro-nowism versus Afrofuturism. Like there's so many different subsections and I just wanted to create like a meeting ground for all of these things to to gather and for people to find all of these different examples in the same space. So I think, yeah, as long as I can try to keep it in this interdisciplinary way through media or through topic, the goals of all these things are very similar. pleasure is being able to talk to so many people. Pains are, I don't, I'm not trained in archival science or library science. so I've been kind of developing my own system as I've gone along and it's not perfect by any means. I'm really trying to think about what the taxonomy should be. Like if we have a tagging structure, what are the names of those tags? Should we use pre-existing ones or should we develop our own terms? I think some of the other pains are making sure nothing, gets, nothing falls through the cracks. So a lot of people email me and I try to respond to all of them in a timely manner. But my inbox is also kind of like a black hole. So <laughs> I'm sure some of those people have like contacted multiple times and I'm trying to do my best to kind of like push them in the right directions. So yeah, I do think that the management part is something I'm learning and the indexing part is something I'm learning maybe a painful pleasure. Currently, the online index is up, cyberfeminismindex.com. It was co- commissioned through Rhizome, so really grateful for their support. Later in uh, April of 2021, I'm starting a residency at Pioneer Works in Brooklyn, and. There I'll be working on the manuscript, so trying to like edit all the content for this upcoming um, printed catalog. So it's going to be the Cyber Feminism Index, which is the online database, and the cyber, f- cyber Feminism Catalog, which is the online, or the printed catalog. And that'll be published by Inventory Press in 2022. I mean, I would love to think of using this project as like a proxy for performance also like how do you visualize or uh, show how citations work how do you show a multiplicity of voices when you're kind of the speakerphone for it is there a way to like collect the authors of these works reading through all their entries so we also get a voice capture i'm really thinking about like how to expand out what the archive is because currently it's primarily English, it's primarily text. And there's some Spanish in there, there's some Korean and other languages, but uh, it can let go in so many directions. So, yeah, I think near future, I'm just really focusing on this catalog. And then far future, maybe a performative reading or something of this nature.
1: Beautiful, yeah, like, an an activation or exactly keeping it yeah. alive that's really great And it seems like you know clearly there has been a lot of engagement and interest so that's encouraging that the, the project yeah
0: Self, doing a future self and going back to past selves to give them messages. And as you talked, I could see the visual of you doing it, and you were given your past and future self messages about traveling. And I said, how do you do that? And you said, here, I'll show you. And you took me back to a room with the past self to tell them something that you need to know in your present.